2: Today we are going back into the history hit archive once more and for me this one is a real treat because in my opinion this is one of the most extraordinary campaigns in roman military history at the start of the third century a.d a roman emperor came to britain at the head of a huge army and navy the emperor's name was septimius severus the african emperor and he came to britain to launch a couple of campaigns north of hadrian's wall against some troublesome tribes situated in what is now central Scotland. And in today's podcast, Dan Snow is joined by the one and only Simon Elliott, the author of a book all about Septimius Severus in Scotland, to talk through these campaigns.
1: Simon, thanks for coming back on the podcast. Now, you have got a forgotten towering figure of british but also world history to talk about this time and tell me about him
3: well this is uh, septimius severus um, so let me give a bit of perspective first dan septimius severus was one of the great warrior emperors who hacked his way to power in ad 193 and in so doing this is the year of the five emperors he fought off all challenges and then embarked on successful wars of conquest in the east where he fought the the parthians and other easterns he actually sacked the parthian capital uh, which very few roman, roman emperors did um, and he campaigned in Africa, where he was a native, because he was born in the blistering heat of a North African summer to one of the richest families in the empire. Um, Punic origin, so his forebears were Phoenicians, and he died in the freezing cold of a Yorkshire winter in 11 which, as I always say, was the wild west of the Roman Empire if you're in the north of Britain. This never conquered part of the Roman Empire where they always struggled. But what the reason he was there was to actually try and do the last major attempt to conquer Scotland when he took 57,000 men uh, in AD 209 and AD 210 in two campaigns to try and achieve what no emperor had done before. And he failed. That's the key thing. He failed, even though he took this enormous army, which must have been one of the, if not the largest campaigning army on British soil, he still failed. But in the second campaign in AD 210, he gave a really, really significant order when he got so fed up with the fact he couldn't conquer the north that uh, he gave this a uh, genocidal order which basically said kill everybody and after, after the campaigns had finished, even though he'd failed to conquer Scotland, because he died, actually, in York in 82-11, even though he'd failed to conquer Scotland, there's now coming to light uh, archaeological data to show there was a major depopulation event in Scotland for, uh, for about 80 years. So this is one of the great, great, great untold stories of British history, which I tackle now in my new book, Septimius Severus in Scotland, The Northern Campaigns of the First Hammer of the Scots.
1: Glad you got the, uh, the pitch in there, buddy. Um, no, so this is absolutely <laughs> remarkable. So he fought from the very eastern end of the Roman Empire right to the west. Yeah. Uh, and, and he died in Yorkshire. I mean, it's also easy to forget, isn't it? It's remarkable. <laughs> so tell me, what was the status when he came to the throne? What was the status of the Roman border uh, at the north of Britannia with uh, you know, Scotland today or Caledonia beyond?
3: Um, well, the two the two tribes we're talking about now, for a start, it's very interesting because when you talk about the Agricolan campaigns to try and conquer Scotland in the um, uh, late first century AD, the, there's a broad term, the Caledonians, describing a, a variety of tribes. But by the time of 100 years later, these are coalesced into two broad tribal confederations. One we're we'll called the Might, eh? um uh, who were based in the middle, Midland Valley. So that's around the Antonine War probably. And then you had the Caledonians to the north who were in the northern Midland Valley. So that's the northern lowlands and then in the highlands as well. And you had campaigning in the f- uh, second century AD, for example, around the time of Hadrian. So you have Hadrian's Wall, for example, around the time of Antoninus Pius, et cetera, So you have the Antonine War where Rome still had an interest and carried out punitive expeditions, but it doesn't look like they tried to conquer Scotland after the agricolan campaign in the late first century AD. So there was interest and it probably is this interaction with the Romans in the north, which caused these confederations to come into being the Maite and the Caledonians. Until t- towards the end of the second uh, century AD, they got to such a level of organization, which they hadn't had before, that they're actually beginning to really, really trouble the northern border. Uh, and around the time that Severus came to the throne, uh, the governor was a chap called Clodius Albinus. Um, and he more or less had the border secure. But in the next decade after Severus came to the throne, that's when you started seeing trouble occurring, which ultimately led to Severus coming to Britain.
1: And what what's the main sources for this? Is it uh, text or or is it archaeological?
3: Uh, it's a mix of everything, actually. I mean, one of the reasons why the the Severan campaigns haven't been covered in in detail to date, apart from him, maybe. A few academic texts and things like Britannia is because, and very well, by the way, but only, only in short form, is because you only have two main and then a number of minor primary sources. Uh, the main ones are Cassius Dio and Herodian, both of who um, have problems as historical sources. Uh, they're they're near contemporaries, so they're writing about it in a near contemporary way. And Dio actually knew Severus, uh, and then you have a number of later, sort of late Roman uh, sources, a hundred, two hundred years later. So therefore, there wasn't that much of a spotlight apart from on a few key facts. However, in the last 10 to 15 years, a lot of data has come through to us from the archaeological record d- due to some fantastic excavations and investigations in Scotland, which has enabled us to uh, look at what probably really happened and what's enabled me to actually interpret the the campaigns in my own way. Principally, you're looking at marching camps. Um, and there are a lot of sequence of Roman marching camps in Scotland. Marching camps are built at the end of a a marching day by the Roman military when they're in enemy territory to defend themselves. And in Scotland, given the size of the force Severus had, it's become apparent to match the larger marching camps to the Severan campaigns so you can actually track his routes. And then on top of that, there's been major investigations on some of the campaigning sites across Scotland, which has enabled us to use analogy to show how the war would have been fought as well. So, for example, there's, a, there's, a, there's a, a, um, a hill fort which was assaulted by the Romans in the Antonine period where that's now been properly investigated north of the border and it shows that what the Romans were doing was an absolute blitzkrieg taking these these settlements out. So, can, let's
1: just uh, go back a little bit. So, wh- why why do we think Severus decided to launch these huge... Uh, expensive campaigns on on the very, uh, on the the in the most unfashionable
3: part of, of the British Empire. <laughs> very well put, Dan. Um, uh, it's worthwhile stepping back ever so slightly to answer your question. So it's worthwhile looking at where Severus came from. It gives you real insight into what he was doing. So he was born in eighty one forty five in Lepsis Magna, one of the richest parts of the Roman Empire in the heat of a blistering summer. Uh, family was Punic, as I mentioned. Um, as, a, as, a, as an aristocrat, he was one of the first in his family, not the first, but one of the first to become a senator. Um, he made steady progress on the Cursus of Norum, uh, and always had an eye for the main chance, although it's only later in life that he developed this military streak, militaristic streak. Um, his first major command was the, the, the commander of the uh, Legio for Scythica, uh, in, um, Syria, uh, where he was the legate in charge of it in the AD 180s. His first province though is very important to us. His first province as a governor was Gallia Lugdunensis, which is northwestern Gaul. Uh, whose capital was Mont Leon. Um, and now, that obviously is a northwestern Gaul That looks out towards Britannia to the north. And actually, uh, you recall our previous conversation about the Classis Britannica. That was in charge of um, controlling the continental coast as well. So therefore, you have this guy for the first time from North Africa looking north towards Britain. This would be um, in the late um, AD 180s. And he became good friends with a the British governor called Pertinax who had a big falling out with the Roman military. One legion apparently rebelled against Pertinax as the governor in Britain and tried to kill him. <clears throat> so from the off, the context that Severus had with Britain was a negative context. Um, and then he, he ended up in the uh, late AD 180s, very importantly, being the... Um, Governor of Pannonia Superior, which is the crucial, crucial province on the Danube, which guards the northern approaches, northeastern approaches to Italy. And that's where he's sitting in AD 192 at New Year's Eve when Commodus is assassinated, the emperor. And there's a scramble for power. So, for, this is the year of the five emperors, AD 193. Pertinax becomes the emperor, falls out with the Praetorian Guard, gets killed. So, Severus's friend Pertinax is killed by the Praetorian Guard. Severus, therefore, um, gets declared the uh, emperor by his legion in his headquarters on the Danube, and he launches a blitzkrieg assault on northern Italy, gets into Rome, stages a coup, and ultimately in the year of the five empress, he's the winner. And uh, you can tell the contempt he had for the political classes in the Rome, because if you look at his arch, the Arch of Septimius Severus in the Forum, it's built effectively almost on the foundations of the Curia Senate House. So it's one of these key Severan things that he always says, you remember who's in charge, it's me. And then Britain comes back into the picture yet again because in AD uh, 196, the British governor, Clodius Albinus, who I mentioned earlier, rebels and usurps because he feels threatened by Cerberus. He takes his three legions, the uh, Legio 20, uh, Valeria Victrix from Chester, the Legio 2 Augusta from Caerleon, the Legio 6, uh, Victrix from uh, York. He takes him to the continent and they fight this. Of apocalyptic battle at and early on in AD one ninety seven, 7, which Severus only wins by the skin of his teeth. So again, his context for Britain is a negative one. And he sends military inspectors to Britain at the end of the campaign to rebuild the military in Britain, but in his own way, so the law to Severus. And the you can see very physically in London the evidence of this because the Severan land walls in London, that great section I've spoken about to you before outside Tower Hill tube station, that was built by Severus to tell the people of London whose governor had rebelled against him, you remember who's the boss. It's the same as the, the Arch of, of Severus in the Forum in Rome. So we go forward to AD 207. And the province, I think, is still really struggling to rebuild itself after the, the Albion uh, Clodius Albinus revolt. I don't think Severus actually wanted to put the full military. Um, presence back as it had been and he may have left the northern frontier unmanned uh, so you have in the late AD 90s the governor then Lupus having to buy off the Caledonian and Mite to keep them quiet however in 8207 Severus gets this letter according to Herodian who's not a very good source by the way but we'll go with him gets his letter from Herodian which says the province then this very important it says the whole province is in danger of being overrun so it's not the north he says the whole province has been in danger of being overrun. So this is a really powerful letter to Severus, and, and, and the, the governor's called Sinesio at this time, and he finishes the letter by saying, I need help from you or reinforcements. This is eighty two oh seven. and what Severus does, he says, you can have both. Um, so that's what the historical sources say the reason he came over for was. However, the context is, that he may have left the northern border in demand. and there's one final point to remember. This is the Maite and the Caledonians themselves. These are confederations which had only just come into being, sort of in the last twenty or thirty years. They're mentioned first in the AD one eighties, and clearly there's a degree of political organisation which was better than was there before. So the population was growing. Um, they'd also got used. The elites had got used to these vast sums of money from the Romans that had bought them off in the AD one nineties, um, but also. Our sources tell us that the weather at the time, this is uh, the the, the late uh, AD 200s, was very, very, very poor, really, really poor. So there may have been some kind of harvest problem. So from a native's perspective, they are a growing population. They are used to Roman wealth and might want more. But also they may have decided that actually we're suffering here. We may have a harvest problem. So we need to go south to get food. All these things coalesce into Severus arriving in Britain in AD uh, 208 with his 50,000 men. So, so he's
1: got 50,000 men with him. There were always, well, usually three legions stationed in Britain, weren't there?
3: Yeah, absolutely. So, so how I many men would he... that be? Uh, well, three legions is about 15,000 men. And you can add to that about 15,000 auxiliaries who, who were still full-fat auxiliaries that we know and recognise from the Roman Principate. Uh, And then other ancillary troops as well. So there's going to be a garrison in Britain of of, of up to, let's say, up to 30,000 men. But when Severus arrives, he brings with him uh, the Praetorian Guard, which he, by the way, reformed completely after becoming the Emperor in 8193. He brings with him his Imperial Guard cavalry. He brings with him his pet new Roman legion, the Legio II Parthica, one of three Parthica legions which he formed to do his eastern campaigns. Again, crucially for Severus, gives us great insight into him. Most legions at this time are still based near the frontiers. Severus bases Legio to Parthica, 30 kilometres from Rome. Why? To tell the people in Rome, you behave or else. It's exactly the same as the Arch, exactly the same as the Walls of London. But he brings them all to Britain. And also the sources tell us that he brings vexillations of troops from the Rhine and the Danube as well. So if you put all that together, it, uh, it looks like around 50,000 men, I would argue, in the book. i going to go into detail Plus you have the 7,000 men of the Classic Britannica who played a crucial role um, in the campaign as well. And this all arrives in, in the Great Estuary in East Anglia and Brough on Humber and in South Shields and in Wall's End. South Shields actually becomes one of the crucial ports where the granaries were increased in size by a factor of 10 to support his campaigns.
2: Plush Care accepts most insurance plans and gives you online access to board-certified physicians who can prescribe FDA-approved weight loss medications like Wigovi and ZepBound for those who qualify. Take charge of your health and speak with a board-certified physician about a weight loss plan that's right for you. Get started today at plushcare.com slash weight loss. That's plushcare.com slash weight loss. so slash weight loss.
1: So you're telling me that one of the most powerful men in the world at the time, spent uh, a long time in the north of England and in Scotland with the largest army ever assembled in that Absolutely part right. of the world. This is a,
3: it's just a fascinating story. Well, it's astonishing, and and, and it's a, it's also the last three years of his life. I mean, the primary sources talk about the fact that he didn't expect to go home either. This is, a, this, this is an interesting take on the psychology of the man, OK? If you look at the Roman po- po- poet Horace, who wrote in the... Um, um, sort of like a very early principate period around the time of uh, 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 his emperor was Augustus. He he had a poem where he said Augustus would not be a god unless he conquered the Parthians, the Persians, uh, and conquered the Britons. Okay, well, Severus, to his mind, had conquered the Parthians. He'd actually sacked their capital, so he chose the last three years of his life to actually come to Britain to try and also finish off the conquest of of of, of, um, of the the province of Britannia. And remember. Uh, he probably initiated the separation of the province of Britannia into two. So it's the first time, it's under his son, eventually it takes place, Caracalla. It's the first time that you end up with uh, Inferior in the north, with York as its capital, and um, London in Superior in the south. So so <clears throat> he chose deliberately chose to spend the last three years of his life in, in Britain, and he actually turned York into the imperial capital. And we know this because the primary sources say that he didn't just bring the military, he brought his wife, Julie Domner, who's a very, very... Um, famous, um, lady in the context of, um, a- uh, Roman leaders, uh, played a, a major role in influencing um, the policy decisions of her husband. He bought his sons, Caracalla and Gita, continually squabbling. Uh, he bought the imperial Fiscus treasury. He bought the treasury with him, Dan. Um, and he bought uh, some of the key senators and he bought his entire court with him. And he turned the Principia, the headquarters building in the legionary fortress in York, which is now beneath York Minster, into the imperial Roman capital. So you'll have gone to York, you'll have seen that massive column, which is out next to the statue of Constantine outside the Minster, that's from the Basilica of the Principia, which he built. And it has been estimated that that Basilica, which he built, as part of it being part of his imperial capital, would have been almost as tall as the Minster is today. Amazing. Cool.
1: Um Right, so what about his campaigns? What does he do?
3: Well, it's, it's, a, it's, it's a very asymmetrical campaign on paper. Um, he's got his 50,000 men. He's got the classic Britannica on the East Coast. So what he does, he basically marches up Deer Street, Go through Corbridge, goes through the wall, enters the Scottish borders, and then eviscerates everything, eviscerates everything um, uh, in, in, in his way, completely scours the place clean. We know his route because here he built a sequence of uh, marching camps up to 70 hectares in size, which would take his entire 50,000 for, force. So one of them, for example, is at um, uh, Newstead. Uh, there's another one at St. Leonard's. There are two more north of that. And a very interestingly, Vindolanda at this time, which is the the fortress south of Hadrian's Wall, which predates Hadrian's Wall, uh, in its Antonine form, which is the one that we see today in the excavations, he actually flattened it, and he he actually made a made made a plateau out of it, and then what he did, he actually built. Hundreds of late Iron Age roundhouses on top of it laid out to a Roman grid pattern. So it looks like that could have been something like a concentration camp for the um, the natives in the borders and you just sent them south. Completely eviscerated the place. Gets to Inveresk, uh, crosses over um, the river there and continues westward now on Deer Street. Gets to the Roman fort at, um, at Crammon, which he rebuilds. And when he rebuilds it, he turns it into a major supply base. So now we have two, two links in the supply chain. We have South Shields, and then we have Crammond on the 4th. He then builds a bridge of boats across um, the 4th, um, up to 500 boats, and uh, probably along the line of the 4th railway bridge today, actually, I would argue. And then he divides his force into two-thirds and one-third, and he sends his son, I, I argue, his son Caracalla, eldest son, um, with two thirds of the force to go to the um, Highland boundary fault, so the Highland line, and then he marches them southwest and northeast on the highland, highland boundary fault sealing off the the, the highlands and so, so the lowlands are sealed off to the south east, and the uh, highlands are sealed off to the northwest and he builds a series of uh, caracalla builds a series of forty five hectare mo- uh, marching camps which can take two thirds of the force to seal off all the glens effectively, so all the people south so the might around uh, the antonine wall and the own Caledonians in the lowlands above, they're now sealed in. And he also locks them in on the sea as well by using the Classic Britannica. And eventually the Navy and Caracalla's legionary spearheads meet somewhere near Stonehaven on the coast. So now the whole of the lowlands, this is by the way AD 209, the whole of the lowlands are now sealed off. So there's no way any high Caledonians north in the highlands can get into there. And everybody in the south is sealed off. He, Severus then himself takes his one third of the force, which would probably be... The elite troops, the Praetorian Guard, I, I would argue that it's the three British legions who are with Caracalla because they were used to campaigning in the region. So Severus now has his two Parthica. he has the Praetorian Guard, the Imperial Guard, Cavalry, equal number of auxilia. He goes with his third of the force, crosses the bridge himself, but instead of going on the Highland Boundary Fault, he just bangs straight through Fife builds 225 hectare marching camps, which we know of, to show the route. And then he gets to the old Antonine uh, harbour and fort on the Tay, which is called Carpow, And again, he rebuilds it. So you now have the third link in the supply chain. So you now have South Shield, Crammond, Carpow, And then once he gets to, to, to the Tay at Carpow, he then builds his own bridge of boats across the Tay. And then he slams into the soft underbelly of the the, the, the and the Caledonians in the Midland Valley, <clears throat> and it brutalises the place. Now, the thing is, there's no there's no set-piece battle, unlike um, uh, Agricola with Mons Grappius. The, the, the historians say there was no set-piece battle, so you just have a, a, a brutal campaigning season of guerrilla warfare, uh, absolutely brutal, in terrible weather conditions. All, all, all the primary sources say the weather conditions were bad. They say that the natives were better at combat, uh, um, better at um, fighting these ca- conditions than the Romans. And actually Dio says the Romans suffered 50,000 casualties, which is a bizarre number, because that's the whole size of the fighting force, but that's literally licensed to show how brutal it was. But at the end of the first season, the campaign is won in some shape or form, uh, probably ceding Fife and the Scottish borders t- to Rome, because uh, coins are minted saying um, uh, uh, Severus and Caracalla have been successful, um, and a uh, peace is agreed and the northern frontiers are garrisoned properly, maybe even the Highland Boundary Fault. Marching camps are maintained with garrisons, but the majority of the force then heads home for the winter to winter in AD 209-210 in York. So the season one is done. Peace is agreed. Looks like Severus can say, I've conquered Britain, but it's not over because across the winter, the Maité rebel again. They're clearly not, not happy with the terms they've got. And... When they rebel, Severus realises he's got to go back again. Now, bear in mind Severus, like he's in his early 60s, he, um, he uh, he's, he's riddled with chronic gout, he's carried on a sedan chair for the whole of his first campaign, so he's really, really fed up um, with uh, with them rebelling again, and the Caledonians predictably join them. So he says, right, we'll go again, we'll reset, it's like a computer game, just reset it, we'll do the whole thing again, exactly the same campaign again. But this is where he gives this genocidal order. And and it's very clever the way that Dio says he does it. Dio has him quoting the Iliad, where Menelaus asks Agamemnon, what shall I do with these prisoners? And this is Severus quoting, according to Dio, um, Homer and the Iliad to his his army, uh, massed in front of him in York. And the quote goes something along the lines of, um, what shall I do with these prisoners? Uh, You shall kill everyone, even the, the babies in the mother's wombs and similar. So it's very, very clear that an order's been given to carry out some kind of hideous genocide. Um, now, Severus is too ill to campaign this time, and Caracalla, who's even more hard-bitten than Severus, um, leads the campaign, and it carry- it's carried out in full. It's even more brutal. I mean, it's even more brutal. And this is where you have this evidence of reforestation in, in the lowlands. You have evidence of um, settlements being abandoned, etc., Um, you have evidence um, of basically some kind of genocide being carried out in the lowlands. Um, And another peace is agreed at the end of AD 210, and there's no rebellion afterwards, probably because there's no one in the lowlands left to rebel. And then Severus, I think, was going to try and keep at least five and possibly the whole of the lowlands within the Roman Empire fully manned. So if he'd have succeeded and survived... You'd have had, you know, a completely different story about um, southern Scotland. Certainly, maybe with stone-built, um, stone-built settlements and things like that. Whether the Picts would have come into being the same way they did is questionable. However, Severus died in February eighty two eleven in York. And then what happened? Well, <laughs> you'll have uh, heard earlier me talking about um, Caracalla and Geta uh, permanently squabbling, permanently fighting, etc. And they, Caracalla in particular is quoted by um, the primary sources as saying that he actually almost carried out a fratricide against his father in eighty two oh nine. 209. So he clearly wanted the throne. So you can almost imagine him as the and Phoenix character in um, in Gladiator looking towards his father, Mox Aurelius, really wanting the throne. Well, that's that kind of picture we're painted with Severus and Caracalla. Severus dies... And there's there's an almost unseemly scramble then from Caracalla and Gita to get back to Rome <laughs> to try and take over the, the sole role of the emperorship. Now, Severus wanted them both to rule, but clearly this wasn't going to happen. And ultimately, by the end of the year, Caracalla had actually killed Gita. Apparently, Gita dying, bleeding with stab wounds in his mother's arms in Rome. So as soon as Severus was dead, they completely lost interest in the campaign. Uh, the Roman forces went back to their bases, the Vexillations went back to the Rhine and the Danube, probably couldn't wait to get back given the weather conditions, and then the border was reset on Hadrian's Wall again. But what we do know is that there was 80 years of peace, apparently because of the archaeological record, etc., in the lowlands, certainly in the north of Britain after the campaigns. So the actual outcome of the campaigns wasn't the conquest of Scotland, it was just probably the longest period of comparative peace on the northern border in modern history.
1: Brutal pacification, total. Um, an extraordinary story. Thank you for showing that. Just quickly, what was um, what Severus's legacy, more broadly, in terms of Roman history?
3: Uh, I, I, as a military historian, look at look, look at his impact on the Roman military, and um, he was the first of the great reforming emperors uh, in the Principate after Augustus of the Roman military. So you could argue that the first Roman field army uh, was actually the uh, field army he put together for the conquest of Scotland in his Exhibitio Felissima Britannica, which is what uh, the contemporaries call it. And if you look at the monuments in Rome, you can actually see in real time the, the transition taking place from the Principates, what will be the later dominate, let's say, the Legionaries, as an example. If you look at the Column of Marcus Aurelius and in Trajan's Column, the Roman Legionaries are wearing Lorica Segmentata largely. They've got the classic Scutum, they've got Pilums and the Gladius. If you look at the Arch of Septimius Severus, not that long afterwards... There are one or two figures in Lorica Segmentata, but they've got large oval body shields and they've got spears. And if you look closely, you can see a lot of the legionary figures are depicted in long um, thigh-length Lorica Hermata chainmail coats with, again, the oval body shield and the um, long spear. So it looks like there's a military transition changing from what was the Principate legionary to later in the Dominate, all the legionaries and all the auxilia are then armed in the same way um let's say from a from the time of constantine with a large oval body shield spear um lorica hamata chain mail and the spatha long the long previously cavalry sword the long sword replacing the um placing the gladius and the reason for that is probably not to do with the british expedition it's probably Severus' experiences in the east fighting the parthians where they're predominantly cavalry based and he's looking at weapons which have got longer reach. And the other point to remember is shortly after Severus's time, you have the crisis of the third century, a big economic crisis, and you'll probably find this change he began accelerated because it's cheaper to maintain and make chain mails, that make the, the, the oval body shields, make the spears, etc.
1: Well, there you go. Comprehensive. Thank you very much. What's the book called? One more time.
3: Uh, the book is called Septimius Severus in Scotland, the Northern Campaigns of the First Hammer of the Scots, published by Greenhill Books, Available in all good bookshops. Absolutely right. Absolutely right. Thank
1: you, Simon Elliott. Thank you so much for coming back on the podcast. Always great to have you on.
3: Thank you very much for having me on, Dan.
2: Thank you for listening to this episode of The Ancients. Please follow this show wherever you get your podcasts. It really helps us and you'll be doing us a big favour.